0: And we're live. Uh,
1: hey everyone, welcome to the Stanford MOSIS Seminar Series. This is the fourth episode. Uh, we're back uh, amidst a lot of drama this week. Uh, so I wanna first introduce uh, everyone here. Uh, I'm Curran, we have with us Dan, Piero, Piotr, Matei, and of course our guest today, um, Alex Ratner from Snorkel AI. Uh, so, the plan today is we'll be talking to Alex about his work um, on the Snorkel project, uh, which he worked on during his PhD, as well as um, in his startup at Snorkel AI. Um, and as always, we'll have a talk for 30 minutes, followed by a podcast style discussion where the audience can ask questions. You can post questions in the YouTube chat and we'll um, follow along. We'll keep track of those questions and then we'll ask them to Alex uh, at appropriate times. And of course, um, in the last 30 minutes, it's only going to be discussion, so you're going to have a lot of time to ask questions then. Um, let me just introduce Alex Ray quickly. Alex is the co-founder and CEO of Snorkel, um, which is supporting the open source Snorkel library, as well as a AI a platform called Snorkel Flow. Um, he's also an assistant professor of computer science at the University of Washington, and before this, he did his PhD at Stanford with Chris Ray, uh, who's also my advisor and uh, Dan's and uh, Piro's, uh, and he... Uh, worked on the snorkel project here, so we're very excited to hear a little bit more about some of the work that he's been doing uh, deploying snorkel at, at organizations um, in his company. So take it away, Alex.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you first of all so much for uh, having me. And um, I'm a little intimidated by the uh, preface that was given on Twitter of competing for people's attention with the election. Uh, so maybe I'll prefer the the uh, multiplex, you know, tab, uh, you know, split screen view if your if your screens are wide enough. So I don't have to. Have to compete with that. But if, if this is in lieu of watching the polling results, I'll try my best to, to be a little bit entertaining. Um, so today, uh, let me go ahead and share my screen first of all.
3: And again, thank you all so much for, for having me on. So I'm going to um, kind of stay pretty
2: high level. And since this is a, you know, a 30 minute talk, is it fine if I go till 335, I guess, with the main content? And then um, if I go a little bit long, cut me off. This is just meant to be a a casual kind of uh, more pragmatically oriented uh, talk anyway. So cut me off when it's time to segue the conversation, because that's the fun part. But um, I'm going to be talking kind of broadly about um, some, you know, lessons and principles from the field, both, you know, the you know, from deploying uh, this, this uh, weak supervision platform, Snorkel, um, in its research form in collaboration with various partners out of Stanford for many years. And now, uh, via the company, we're working with, you know, several top US banks, government agencies, uh, Fortune 50 companies across, you know, uh, different verticals, telco insurance, uh, biotech pharma, technology, etc. Um, I can't, you know, share a ton of details on that, but I'm going to be talking a little bit high level about some of the 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 you know principles that have that, that either you know, I've learned from these experiences or that um, I, I at least hold as opinions and so it's going to be highly opinionated at at a at a sufficiently abstract level and hopefully that sparks some discussion uh, afterwards. I'll also try to give a little bit of a recap of what Snorkel is. Um, I don't want to bore uh, some of the people on the call or on the, the talk who have heard me talk about Snorkel before. I, I see Karan smiling, I think you've heard, you know, maybe once or twice, had to sit, suffer through it. Um, but I'll, I'll give a brief overview the, there as well. So I'm gonna just kind of loosely uh, run through five lessons from, you know, what I'll call real world AI. And and um, as uh, uh, some of our mutual advisors, uh, a mutual advisor of ours, uh, Chris Ray can tell you, I love my caveats. So I'm gonna start with two to, to come in hot. One here is just to, or rather, footnotes um, for real world. I, I don't pretend to know really what this phrase means. So functionally, here I'm just going to mean, you know, what AI looks like when it's not at, you know, a big five tech company or or at the Stanford AI lab. And in terms of AI, I'll, I'll get back to that in bullet point number four about why I'm saying AI and not not machine learning in this context. Uh, so I'll start with. Um, you know, the top one, which is uh, the importance of data in machine learning today. And, and this is really just gonna be a, a bit of a recap of the motivation for the Snorkel project and now company that we've been working on for many years, as well as a, a much, you know, a very broad and interesting area of, of work, both in the kind of ML meet systems communities around data management for machine learning, as well as, you know, in the kind of machine learning community around what's often called weak supervision or various limited labeled data techniques, which is again, a classical area of study that's kind of, um, Uh, gotten a lot of extra energy from the modern, you know, data hungry model classes that people use today. So the the motivation, this is going back to kind of, you know, circa 2015, when maybe this was a little bit more of a risque bet for a research project, whereas compared to to now, um, was looking at the ML uh, pipeline at a very, you know, coarse grain level, and seeing that there was really this, this big tectonic shift that had happened, a big shift to you know uh, both methodologically to you know deep learning or representation learning methods and also just in terms of what the infrastructure landscape looked like uh, uh, concomitant with that shift you know lots of stuff being open sourced and more robustly supported uh, through common frameworks and, and model zoos than ever before um, and you know we looked at that time back in 2015 at the landscape and you know let's let's start we started with supervised learning this is you know the you know most you know canonical and still kind of workhorse form of machine learning out in the real world So you know I I want to, you know, take in a blob of text or an image and, and label it some way or route it some way you know, all, uh, equivalently. And you have three basic key ingredients. You have some training data, which in the case of, say, labeling documents would be a bunch of documents pre-labeled with the right the right label, and, and the machine learning model would learn from that. You have the actual model uh, itself. And then you have... Um, oh, I messed up my animations. Oh. <laughs> and then you have the uh, um, the infrastructure broadly, the the hardware, the the, um, the frameworks that actually, you know, train and serve this model. And I'm gonna start with an intentionally, um, uh, you know, a little bit of a strong statement just to, to keep things interesting, which is to say that um, these latter two aspects, the model, the infrastructure for a, at least a, a pretty wide, a staggeringly wide array of, of applications that used to be incredibly difficult and require incredibly, you know, extensive and bespoke efforts to, to, to tackle with machine learning are now, you know, increasingly commoditized in the sense that um, you, know, you can, uh, you know, boot up a terminal that has an internet connection with a couple lines of Python, be training a state-of-the-art image classifier or, or, or text extraction model um, in a pretty robust way. And this is, again, a testament to all the progress the last couple of years, the last five, ten years, that you can not only get a you know, state-of-the-art really powerful solution, but do it in such a you know, push button and really well-supported way. Obviously there are tons of challenges left in these, in these two buckets, but there's a whole swath of applications where suddenly these are not, at least in a stack rank, the key bottlenecks anymore. Rather, it's um, increasingly the training data. And so this is what we were seeing back in 2015, where we see a ton out in the world today. You have teams that have the models they want to use, at least for their first or second order passes. They have the infrastructure, you know. Uh, bespoke or 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 you know generic, uh, closed source or open source, they have it ready to go for training and serving the models at least you know up to some capacity and some basic SLAs. What they're waiting on and what they're sitting stuck on is the is the is the data and specifically the data that's labeled to train the model on. So I have one example. This is a project that we did with the Stanford uh, Radiology Department and and some other departments uh, at the um, at Stanford Medicine. Um, uh, was recently published in, in Cell Patterns. We've been working on it for a while. And I'm going to give an example of one of the tasks we tackled, which is uh, um, a triaging chest x-rays. So this was a simple machine learning task, just taking a chest x-ray and either label it as an emergency. So a, a, a human doctor should read it right away, bump it to the top of the queue, or um, uh, a, uh, you know, uh, something that can sit in the queue, motivated by, you know, uh, understaffed, you know, uh, under-resourced hospital systems where we're not aiming to replace the human radiologist, which uh, we don't view as you know, currently responsible in real world practice, but we're aiming to help triage uh, when when um, these systems are under-resourced. Anyway, those are all kind of extraneous details to so the point being made here. Um, main point was that um, when, and sorry, I messed up the animations again. When um, uh, building the models, there uh, the, the team, uh, these were some, um, researchers in the radiology department in, in Daniel Rubin's lab you know, took a, a couple of days to try out kind of all the latest and greatest image classification models and if you looked at the at the variance between these models um, this was in a, the metric were optimizing roc auc it was about you know less than a point conversely it had taken eight person months of a stanford radiologists sitting there labeling data points one by one to actually build up a training set and if you look at the difference between you know a couple of weeks of effort and the full eight person months um, it was an order of magnitude greater than the difference between which model architecture you used. So again, it's not really an either or in a binary sense, it's just if you look at the leverage points for, you know, uh, for where, you, where you get impact, um, in many applications today, it's, you, you get much more leverage from getting more training data or making it better or managing it in smarter ways than you do from a fancier model, for example. And conversely, that's often where you get stuck on that, that hugely expensive uh, data requirement. And this is what we see that a lot of the access to the amazing ML progress that we see and that we many of us contribute to is really blocked by the, the cost of labeling training data. And I just want to, since the, the theme of this talk is to be a little bit more about the, the practical experience and the practical real world angle on, on these topics, I want to take a, you know one extra slide to talk about what the, the real practical pain points are in most use cases. So I think we're all very used to hearing about certain and actually, having and working on as as researchers and practitioners, certain you know use cases where training data is either plentifully available, you know, uh, anything from you know customer churn to predictive maintenance, where you have labels, you know, implicit labels, you know, you know when a customer churns, for example, uh, or where you can get cheap labels. So you know, is this a cat or a dog, or you know, is this a stop sign or a pedestrian and self-driving, um, where you can you know take data that's public and fairly static. And that, you know, say the road inter- infrastructure and you know, cat dog interspeciation doesn't change often. And you can ship it out to be labeled by lay annotators, you know, at pennies on the dollar, um, which has its own own, own issues separately. But um, suffice like to say, it's, it's feasible to get huge, huge training sets labeled. Even then, you know, ImageNet took years to create as one example. Um, these are still very difficult to do, but they're at least feasible. In most real world settings, medicine, finance, government, anything with user data and technology or telecom, insurance, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you have a bunch of uh, pain points that are, are real blockers. So data privacy is one, you know, often shipping data out of org to get labeled uh, is just a non-starter. And even when you're internal to the org, you know, getting access to the data um, at scale. So for, you know, enough annotators to label it is, is a, a real, real you know, hurdle and, and, and blocker or oftentimes just not an option. Uh, say if you have user data, a tech company, uh, they often have internal policies that that, that no one can look at the data. Um, you often have subject matter expertise requirements, so you need um, highly trained annotators um, uh, who, you know, even then, you know, disagree and often change how they're annotating the data. To spend a ton of time doing this labeling, so it's not uh, just a, you know anyone. It's a doctor or a lawyer or a specially trained you know bio annotator um, uh, who's doing the labeling. And you have um, uh, a ton of, of change. So this is not just the classic kind of input distribution shift that is often studied in machine learning, although that's certainly important. It's you know seemingly trivial changes in 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 upstream systems, like how some text is being tokenized or pre-processed. It's downstream changes in, in what um, uh, the business or 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 uh, you know systems requirements are of downstream consuming systems. It's change in this in the schema or the definition of how you're say classifying something. Um, a recent project that we uh, that that um, a you know, large top three U.S. bank was building on top of Snorkel Flow, and we uh, were not directly involved, but we were able to measure that they had over within one month over seven changes to the schema of how they were labeling some task. And so this is you know, if you're just hand labeling data, you have to would have to change it seven times, and then you'd probably just stop and kill the project after after time number one. So it's not just the cost of labeling data. On Mechanical Turk, which is maybe the reality that some of us, you know, saw in 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 the research lab world, it's in most use cases in the real world these very uh, zero-to-one blockers that touch on very very solid and 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 thorny requirements around you know privacy expertise and 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 speed. So obviously the the uh, uh, this was you know I'm all talking about the the motivation back in 2015 for Snorkel and uh, our approach that we. Uh, started working on them and are still working on, uh, and there's still tons of problems that are interesting both on the research and and practical side here um, are uh, or that's sorry that's false dichotomy on the research and kind of uh, you know engineering and deployment side, I should say. High level idea is rather than having people label data individually by hand, one by one, uh, let users, especially subject matter expert users, label data programmatically. so encode what they know as programs that label data. Um, things like rules or heuristics or other sources of information, and use that to label data. And I'll get into that in a second. Obviously, this was a project that we were uh, honored and excited uh, to you know, have Snor- uh, Stanford support for many years, and uh, now it's um, being supported by uh, a company, Snorkel AI, uh, as uh, Karan had mentioned. And what the company is building now, just to give a quick preview, is a, a platform version of, uh, you know, built around this this key Paradigm shift towards programmatic labeling, and so, in a nutshell, the lesson that we learned towards the end of our uh, of our Stanford tenure was that you know this ca- this concept had a, a ton of potential, and, and we published about use cases all the way from you know uh, Google and other great industry partners over, over to government and and you know nonprofit uh, 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 you know journalistic and social science based applications and a ton of exciting stuff, but the main blocker was the fact that uh, you know it took a lot of of you know Bespoke engineering to, to get the concept to work. Unsurprising for a research project, and so um, we you know spun out the company to try to actually build a well-engineered end-to-end platform for iteratively building these programmatic uh, training data-driven applications. And so, Snorkel Flow, I uh, will go into it in a second. So let me let me uh, dive in and just give the high-level idea. And this is both describing uh, you know the the con- the you know the, the concepts around Snorkel that we did research on. Um, and, and published about in the open source, and also now the, uh, the platform version that you know, puts all of this in a, in a nicely um, engineered uh, framework. Uh, so the key idea um, to start, uh, let's switch examples to keep things interesting and imagine that we are training a machine learning model to label contracts. Um, and, uh, you know, the way that this starts is by having users directly inject what they know in programmatic form rather than or in addition to labeling data by hand. So rather than asking some legal ops analyst to sit down and label individual contracts, you know, thousands of them one by one, you know, this one's class A, this one's class C, you know, write down certain things. Like if I see this word in the title or if it matches this dictionary of financial terms, then label it this way. Or if it matches, if our legacy system labels it this way, then, then label it that. And we call these labeling functions, and can think of all of them, as, you know, in, in kind of simple semantics as a function that takes in a data point and either abstains or outputs a label. And so, so the, the benefit of this, which can talk about more later, and and you know, the, the real practical benefits of this are all the ones that you can imagine, kind of fall out of this shift up the abstraction stack from hand labels to code, right? You can uh, write code that labels a ton of data, you know. In, in, in you know, a fraction of the time that it would take to actually label that data by hand, you can version it, you can audit it, you can uh, modify it, you can share pieces of it. Um, this is all extremely important. The problem, of course, is that you know, these labeling functions are are you know going to make mistakes, and they're going to be incomplete in their coverage, and they're going to be this you know there are going to be disagreements between them, and there are going to be weird correlations between them. And in general, we refer to this you know under the broad umbrella of you know uh, what's often called weak supervision. They're they're not um, they're messier to deal with. And so we did a lot of work. I'm mostly going to skip over this. And some of this work has been, you know, carried on by, uh, by even smarter folks like Dan and, and others here. Um, and and uh, a lot around, you know, basically how you can take in these, these labeling functions and actually learn how to, you know, up and down weight them. Intuition is, is based on a very old uh, theoretical intuition, um, which is, you know, to look at essentially how these, labeling functions agree and disagree, and in a provable way, even without separate ground truth and under some loose conditions, you can just look at those patterns of agreements and disagreements often encoded as some form of a covariance matrix and back out which of these labeling functions are more or less trustworthy, which are more or less correlated, and use that to reweight and combine their labels into a final you know, training label per data point. Um, and so in you know, a platform version of this concept like snorkel flow, uh, this, results in a nicely, you know, uh, cleaned and managed and versioned training set that's now labeled using the input of these, you know, messy uh, labeling functions. And you can now use this to train a machine learning model. And one common question that comes up is, you know, in this overall pipeline is, well, if you've already written a bunch of functions and now you've combined them, you've, uh, you've actually defined a model over these labeling functions, why can't you just use that as the predictor? Why are you then training a machine learning models to be the predictor? And, and the The basic answer is um, that we're aiming to generalize beyond these input labeling functions. So it's often really difficult to write things like labeling functions that are both high precision, high recall over things like unstructured data, text, image, video, et cetera. That's why the the shift to machine learning happened in the first place over old expert or role-based systems. But the trick in Snorkel is that you can write some of them that cover some of the data and train a machine learning model that can often generalize beyond them. So one example, and this is from a current customer that's a a major US bank, they um, wrote a lot of these labeling functions. Actually, a ton of these were just importing existing heuristics or rules that they had previously written in a rules-based approach. They covered about 85% of the data, trained up a model that got 97%. So you're kind of getting extra generalization, extra recall often from this uh, machine learning model in a very modular way. So that segues into, well, not perfectly, but segues into, a uh, next point. So th- that was a kind of very brief, very, very high level tour of the idea behind uh, Snorkel. And obviously there's a, a ton more there on the academic side. You can talk to either me or other people in in the Stanford lab with uh, you know, Dan and, and Karan and Chris and others, if you're curious. Um, and obviously on the company side, a ton more there as well. Some of which I'll kind of touch on briefly in the next couple of minutes but obviously if you are interested more the uh, snorkel.ai is the website. But either way, the high level concept is just you know, this basically data first way of approaching machine learning where um, in snorkel, your goal is to iterate on your machine learning model by iterating on the training data uh, in a functional way rather than you know some other part of the pipeline. Um, and it seems like a simple idea but it's actually kind of the, the gaping hole in most other systems that are out there where you know, uh, everything starts with an assumption that you have a massive, perfectly labeled training set and uh, proceeds from there. And this is often the thing that you have the least of and have the most blockers to in most use cases. And so um, Snorkel doesn't provide a kind of auto magic push button solution so you're done in five minutes, but it does at least give you a development platform where you can, in a matter of days, uh, build up a labeled training set and a high performing model. And so that's uh, what we've seen be very powerful in a, in a wide range of real world settings. But to move on, I just want to kind of run through I guess I'm. the time is dwindling, but just a couple of other uh, high-level lessons. Obviously, I've now kind of given you the, the grounding or the anchoring where all these perspectives came from, you know, through work on, on you know, Snorkel and uh, back at Stanford and now Snorkel Flow uh, through the company with uh, lots of great real-world customers. This is where these, these uh, lessons or opinions derive from. Uh, but having given that grounding, I'll pop up the abstraction level and just kind of talk about them them broadly. So the next kind of big thing that I think is maybe sounds like a no-brainer, but I believe is still kind of severely undervalued in uh, most machine learning systems and approaches out there is the ability to iterate. And really, this comes down to, you know, for an ML engineer or a data scientist who's using an ML system, you know, what do I do next uh, to improve my model? And I actually want to relax this in a sense, and and and. Imagine you know, that we have an easier form of this problem, which, which is skipping over a lot of hard stuff often. But imagine you know, the common setting where you actually have a good idea of what's going wrong. And so this is you know, what should be an embarrassingly simple uh, question. I know what's going wrong. How do I just go in and fix that? And in practice, this is almost staggeringly difficult uh, in, in most ML approaches. Just to you know, kind of give this some grounding, Pardon me, this is another way of kind of really just posing the question, how does someone with some knowledge of the problem, some domain expertise, actually communicate this uh, or inject this into the machine learning model or, or, or system or stack? Um, or in other words, like, how do we actually enable people to do good old-fashioned iterative error analysis uh, to drive their development, right? If you're writing any other kind of software, you write some software, you look where it may, you know makes mistakes, you go back and you fix those bugs, and that's how you build it. How do you do that in machine learning? So imagine we're doing, a, you know, um, text classification. Now I'm hopping around. So let's say this is back to the radiology setting, and I'm trying to classify uh, radiology reports. And I look at some of the errors my model is making. And and obviously, you know, finding those errors and you know clustering them and guiding the users to them is its own you know problem that uh, deserves attention. But let's say we've you know we found some errors and we've found some themes. Uh, which is, you know, should be easy from here on out. You know, uh, an expert is telling us, say, you know, the model is missing negations, right? It's just this one simple feature uh, that, that the model is making a mistake on. Let's just go fix that. Um, you know, I'm happy to hear pushback here, but in most ML approaches, this is, there's not, you know, a simple way to approach this. There's not an, certainly, you know, from the perspective of a practitioner, there's not a really easy way to take this knowledge, this, in this case, it's really well-defined as a, you know, a certain, you know, prior on a certain feature that you think is associated very strongly with an error mode and actually just inject that into your system to improve the performance or adapt it. Um, and, and I think if you think about it from this very practical perspective which is how the actual practitioner thinks about it, um, it's kind of staggering that most ML systems don't have a good answer. You know, you can, maybe they'll say, well, try a, a deeper model or add three layers or add a, you know, convolutional Turing turtle or whatever the new thingy majiggy is, or, you know, like, you know, maybe someone strokes their beard and says, well, it's, it's probably overfitting. So let's, let's grid search the regulars. I, I mean, like, there's all kinds of tips, but there's not a direct way to just, you know, uh, uh, take something that, you know, and put it into the system, especially with today's extremely complex models. And so um, not saying that we have a perfect solution, but this is one thing that we've, uh, really doubled down on in uh, in, in where we've directed our efforts uh, with the company um, is focusing on this this analysis and feedback loop. And arguably this is one reason why, you know, Snorkel has had some success in, in, in real world settings is because um, there's a fairly direct way to inject that knowledge. You write what we call a labeling function and you basically project that knowledge onto the data. And that's how you teach your model, uh, uh, you know, how you kind of inject what you know about these error modes and without going into too much detail one of the biggest areas of you know building that we've done now that um you know snorkel is living in a company with a you know a bunch of great engineers and you know front-end designers and 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 uh, front-end engineers and designers and, and and all that is to actually work on this experience of you know um, accelerating iterative analysis and um and correction of error modes because this seems to be one of the the biggest gaps out there and the biggest asks, uh, a very sensible ask, is just if I have a mistake in my model and I can actually tell you what it is, give me a clear prescriptive way to go change that and, and fix it and turn the crank. And I'm going to skip over this for time, but you know, obviously there, there were a lot of, uh, you know, labeling is not the only way you could think of, uh, even just around the data, injecting something you know. Um, and we did work, uh, um, a lot of the Folks that are now at the snorkel company as well as others that are still here in the lab um, you know, have done and are doing a lot of great work on other types of operations where you can you know, inject what you know whether it's you know, in response to some error analysis or just you know, starting de novo onto the data to, to program you know, effectively program a machine learning model. So it's not just labeling data but it's also uh, transforming or augmenting data. You know, so you see that your model is uh, susceptible to some kind of um, you know, feature shift that it should be invariant to. You know, it's it's changing class when you rotate the image. Let me, uh, one way to correct that is to, you know, uh, create rotated copies of images, say, is the canonical example of data augmentation and inject it that way. Um, another thing that we we looked at um, uh, uh, on the academic side and, and now the company is um, uh, looking at different subsets of the data or slices of the data where, you know, uh, Either the decision boundary might be more complex and difficult, or where the just the importance of getting that slice right is extremely high, and figuring out how to communicate that to the model. Um, And I'm going to skip over detail there. I think suffice to say that you know those are some other ideas beyond labeling. I think there are many exciting ways to kind of allow people to iteratively program machine learning um, that have been both looked into and that will uh, that have you know kind of yet to be looked into. So I think there's a ton of exciting stuff to do here. My, my overall kind of hot take, which I'll make slightly more opinionated just, just to distract people from the election tickers or 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 try to, uh, is that, you know, I think any machine learning system that doesn't give a direct path for a user that sees an error to then go and address that in a direct way is just not gonna be used. And and I have many data points that I can't really share, but but that I can back that up with where again, you know, Fancy machine learning AI system comes in the door. A data scientist or often a subject matter expert says, hey, it's messing up here. They go say, how can I fix that? And they get some mumbo jumbo and no clear pathway forward and the system is gone, which you know, m- makes sense that that would be the response. Um, OK, so just to run through a couple of other kind of high level themes that I think are, are important and somewhat undervalued or. or, or or, or just you know, maybe a little bit different than the prevailing trends on the research side so it might be of some interest. Modularity is one thing I think is extremely important. This isn't new for anyone on the kind of engineering side but I just think it's worth you know, renewed focus on the ML side. Um, I'll kind of go through this a, a kind of a fast clip but I think you can break this down in, in three ways at least how we think of it from the snorkel point of view. Um, modularity with respect to other ML systems and the overall ecosystem, modularity with respect to um, inputs and existing expert knowledge and modularity with respect to the the actual task you're you're building or the pipeline you're building. Um, So uh, I'd say first, there's kind of three uh, broad ways to build an ML system today, Uh, whether this is a research project or a company, there's kind of three uh, high level tasks you could take, I think, one is that you can actually try to build something end to end. And the appeal there is that you actually just and, and do it in a way that doesn't you know have permissive ways to hook up to other you know existing models or systems. The benefit there is you get full control over what you know how someone actually builds a model or an application. So it's appealing from that respect. Um, but just you know you're kind of uh, fighting the tide here uh, in that there's a just, a just a Cambrian explosion. I think even that term has been overused for describing the ML space in terms of the new models coming out all the times, the time the new systems. The, you go to any uh, moderately large enterprise uh, out there today, you, you know, would need hundred hands to count how many different you know, internal ML systems they're trying or have running internally. And um, if you're trying to kind of go in and say, well, no, you do everything with my system, it's, it's a very difficult thing to pitch. And it's also just, again, relative to the rate of at which that new stuff is being you know, put out there, especially into the open source, not necessarily the best bet to make. Um, on the other extreme, you can do what a lot of, you know, approaches and, and companies out there do, which is do a very narrow point solution. Say you're going to just own one very narrow slice of of the, the ML pipeline. And, you know, it, one thing that uh, I can say we learned from, you know, talking to companies outside of Silicon Valley is that this has its significant problems as well because most organizations may have lots of other systems or may want to have the ability to, to interoperate with lots of other systems, but they also don't have, you know, ML pipelines that exist and are running at the sophistication of a Google or, you know, frankly, a Stanford AI Lab project, where they're actually in the market to just slide in a layer that does, you know, one thing. They're actually looking for things that could provide end-to-end value uh, when it comes down to it. And so, you know, what I can say, again, I know I'm being kind of abstract and high level here, but the middle ground that we've taken. Um, is to actually, you know, offer an end-to-end solution so someone can actually use the platform to build uh, not just models, but as I'll briefly mention in a second, applications end-to-end. But having, you know, access points and permissivity to connect uh, and and you know, you know, interoperate at basically every stage. So again, this is just a, I mean, this is in some sense a working hypothesis, but we've had good reception around this middle ground um, where you know we and others have kind of stumbled with either of those first two extremes of either owning everything uh, entirely or just trying to you know, bite off a, a tiny little piece of the ML pipeline and only do that. And so I'll skip kind of over this, but again, you know, our, our system, you know, we can, you know, people can inject anything they want, want as those labeling functions are their operators via Python SDK, they can pull out training labels to train their own models. They can uh, pull out the models themselves. They can re-register them back in to do the, the the analysis. Basically, every step of the pipeline is, you know, you can have almost entirely free input and output uh, via a Python SDK, is what we use right now. But basically, it allows you to uh, drive to value, whether initially or for a final production application, end to end. But you know, not have a fear of being locked in and actually be able to interoperate. So, widening the aperture, zooming out of just Snorkel, I think the the high level principle here, just looking at the space. Um, again, whether academic or commercial, is you know not to fight the tide of progress here, uh, of how many systems there are out there, but also not to shrink away from actually trying to provide new end-to-end experiences that actually can you know drive someone to value either, and, and picking a middle ground that's actually serviceable. Um, with respect to existing expert knowledge, I'm going to kind of skim over this because I'm coming on to time, but I think you know one one answer that gets actually like you know. Vitriolic emotional reactions from organizations like you know, we've done a lot of work, uh, both uh, through the Stanford AI Lab and now, um, with uh, uh you know, via the company as uh, customers with um, the government. And there are a ton of uh, you know, subject matter experts who have highly, highly refined expert knowledge that they can codify that they deploy day to day. Um, and you can imagine that when someone you know, some hotshot ML person comes in and says, okay, well, fire all those people. And uh, just, or, or some of them can stick around, they can just label data all day, and we'll train a machine learning model to, to replace their function. Um, this is both just objectively wasteful, it's also not something that uh, that organization is is kind of happy or receptive about. And so our opinion is that uh, rather than, you know, thinking that you know, you throw out all of the old and, uh, um, uh, and just start over, uh, a good you know, ML system today should try to leverage the existing knowledge, uh, whatever form it's in. And, and so to give a couple of examples, just rapid fire of how we've done this uh, in the, in, in, you know, via Snorkel, um, sorry, the animations got messed up here as well. Um, we published a, a while back about a, a collaboration with Google with several teams there where we deployed a, a kind of prototype, kind of old prototype version of uh, the platform that we're now um, building at the company, Snorkelflow, Uh, with three teams there, replaced tens of hundreds of thousands of hand labels. Um, uh, Sorry, the takeaway here is wrong, but there were were several fun takeaways. I encourage you to check out the blog post or the paper, but the the takeaway that I meant to actually voice here was that we wrote a lot, as much detail as we were allowed to, about how we actually leveraged a ton of internal models and data sources as labeling functions um, in doing this, this deployment. And so whether or not you do it as labeling functions, the higher level principle there is just, you know, when you have organizations that have models, databases, knowledge graphs, heuristics, use those, uh, using those is a massive accelerant um, compared to just saying, we're gonna only start from you know, vanilla labeled training data, for example. Um, another thing I'll just highlight, you know, Jason, um, uh, who's awesome uh, and is a, a research, uh, researcher here at Stanford, um, you know, he recently deployed uh, Snorkel to help identify um, clinical observations related to COVID in uh, electronic health records at the Stanford Hospital. And, you know, uh, he can speak for himself. Uh, or, uh, he, he has, uh, you read his blog post a lot more detail here. But one thing I want to pull out from this is that, you know, part of the reason he was able to do this so rapidly is because he had an existing library of, of kind of building blocks for handling EHRs and building, in this case, labeling functions around them. And so whether you do it via snorkel or through some other technique, it's absolutely critical to have this, this modularity where you can reuse pieces of, of knowledge and infrastructure rather than what's often done in the ML world today, which is every single new t- task you have, you have to start with a fresh hand-labeled uh, training data collection effort. Um, maybe it sounds like I'm, I'm arguing it's a straw person here, but, but that, that is actually how it's done in most places. And the key is to just, you know, do what you would do in any other sane software project is try to have reusable components. Um, and then finally, another pitch on this expert knowledge piece um, we did uh, led by Jason and, and Emily, who was in Russ Altman's lab at the, uh, here at Stanford. Um, and, and Jason just you know, released a new paper called Trove on, on a new version of this. A lot of work and we're also doing now uh, via the company along with some, some of our, our uh, customers on the government side. A lot of stuff where we're trying to automatically derive labeling functions and supervision for machine learning models uh, from expert ontologies. So basically, you have these. I won't go into detail about like what ontologies are or how much information and time has been spent codifying human knowledge in the form of ontologies um, in the medical world, in the defense world, in, in many places. But you know, the ability to actually use this to train machine learning um, is is a you know. A, something that both excites people who who are excited that you can actually use this stuff rather than throwing it away. And it's also a massive boost for ML approaches. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is just around application pipelines. Um, I'll, I'll cut, I'm almost done. Um, modularity within the pipeline you're building is also, I think, extremely important. And so let's take an example task. You have a, uh, um, a news and analytics task. This is something that's, you know, being built by a large uh, financial institution on top of Snorkel Flow right now. Um, and you want to analyze it, say you want to pull out, um, these are not exact details, but just, you know, uh, you know, at a high level, you want to do something like, you know, tag companies in the news and identify what their role is or what their sentiment is. And so you could do this kind of one of two ways, right? You could think of this as a pipeline of tasks, named entity recognition, then linking, then classification, you know, tag what the companies are, then link them to canonical identifiers like stock tickers, then classify what the role is or what the sentiment is, et cetera. Or you could do this as one kind of joint modeling approach that just takes in text and spits out the actual tuples you want. And this might be, a, or I hope this is somewhat controversial because it's got to keep some, motivate something for the discussion. But um, you know, I think there's a lot of interest in these end-to-end systems, these you know, large uh, models that do things jointly. Um, And this is a a classic theme, right? You know, uh, bundling things up and doing joint, you know, whether it's multitask learning or it used to be joint inference or whatever you call it, you get extra points, but you lose a lot of the practical benefits of having a modular pipeline. And then, you know, then then the cycle reverses and you go to decoupling either way. I think we're at the the time of the cycle where um, a lot of the ML community is interested in these, you know, more end-to-end Approaches and complex models that you know do something a complex multi-part task you know all in one go, and they certainly can perform better on benchmarks. But I'll say that the strong opinion in real-world practice is that the the value of the modularity of being able to mix and match and swap components, and being able to inspect intermediate outputs you know talk about a different very practical definition of interpretability that is one that's used in practice quite a bit. You know, uh, my my money is is very much on these these pipelines. Really, being you know, how people continue to 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 build systems rather than going to these joint approaches, and so I think you know there's probably a lot of interesting study there uh, that's a little contrarian uh, to do on the research side of understanding these pipelines in the modern context, because I think they're here to stay. Okay, and then I'll just uh, quickly touch on two points: uh, applications. You know, I think people, and this is actually why I said AI, not ML, because I think people chronically underestimate the pre the the, the the prevalence and importance of heuristic operators in machine learning model pipelines. So I, I don't need to like take confessions from people on this call. And I don't know, maybe it's not, not the case here at Stanford but you know, most real world ML applications that I've seen in practice have some you know, heuristic pre or post-processing step or even intermediate steps. And those things, whether they're candidate extraction for an information pipeline or, or you know, just simple pre and post-processing have a huge effect on the performance actually measured end to end of the final application. And so this is just a note to say that while we are, are you know, oftentimes productively very focused on just the machine learning model, there's often a broader context that includes both statistical and heuristic operators um, that is actually used in practice for, for very sane reasons, often having to do with, with those ones around modularity and practicality. And um, you know, if you wanna actually understand how deployments get done, you need to understand this broader picture. Okay, and the final thing. This is actually a one-liner. Is just that, uh, you know, I'll end with a, a very, uh, you know, hypey-sounding phrase of, you know, the future of AI is collaborative. But the the one-liner here is that I think, you know, in many ways, you know, I think you can view the success uh, that is just the ridiculously massive pace that the field of machine learning has progressed at, um, as this, you know, as, as owing it to this kind of decoupling or this API between the subject matter experts and other roles and the machine learning developers where they only need to communicate through labeled data points or, or, or something like that. You can ignore you know, what the doctor knows or says because I have a bunch of chest X-rays that are labeled a certain way and I can just plug them into my machine learning model and keep searching for the best architecture the best approach. Um, again, you know, kind of touching on themes expressed earlier, you know, I think that decoupling is, is not practical anymore. And I think the most, you know, notable thing that you see when you go to real-world deployments is that, um, you know, any successful AI team has stakeholders that are subject matter experts, whether they're the lawyers or the business analysts or the the doctors or the the network traffic analysts or you know, pick your vertical. Um, data scientists, you know, now you have ML DevOps, you have ML engineers, you have the business manager that wants to understand what's going on in the pipeline. And so I think um, this is another aspect to keep in mind when you're thinking about designing. You know, actually, practical, real-world ML systems. Whether you integrate the subject matter expert, like we do, via programmatically interacting with the data at, at Snorkel, or whether you do it in some new creative way, um, I think you have to think of these, you know, interdisciplinary teams if you want to actually be dealing with with real-world, um, uh, you know, deployments. And again, maybe that sounds like a very trite, generic point, but I still think it is one that is, you know, se- severely undervalued in in, in you know the ML uh, research world and in ML systems today, which are primarily, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, aimed at you know one of these roles alone. Cool. Okay. Let me pause there. Sorry, I went way over time. But um, you know, maybe uh maybe I'm here. I'm saved by the thing that I was scared of in the beginning. Maybe everyone is checking the polls so much that they don't actually have a ton of questions. Either way, let's let's see now.
1: We have uh we have so many questions. <laughs> um, I was actually wondering if we can. <laughs> back five or 10 extra minutes, or 10, 15, even. Um, I I can. Yeah, I can, yeah. Yeah, we have like, uh, yeah, I mean, we've been just uh, flooded with questions in the chat. I think people really want to forget about what's happening. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um,
2: I'm bracing myself.
1: uh, Sorry, could you also stop sharing screen, um, if possible? Oh, sure, Uh, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, so uh, I can can get us started. I think um, uh, a lot of questions were around, iteration so you spoke to a little bit about the importance of iterating on your labeling functions on the model and how that's uh at, at least from what it sounded like you viewed that as that as kind of critical to successful uh, machine learning and enterprise um so there are a few questions there um one question i think which is more broad is like how does snorkel or snorkel flow solve this problem more specifically i think you mentioned a few <laughs> things about that and um, just to tack on to that, maybe you can speak to some of the successes you've seen of model iteration um, in your customers, or trends or things there that you've seen kind of work well. Um, and then I'll tack on a few follow-up um, things around um, iteration that people have been asking.
2: Awesome. And I also just want to want to note, um, not that I'm trying to get out of uh, the the, the horde of questions, but that you know some other folks on this call. I know you know Dan, for example, and, and many others have have some, you know, very interesting things to say about this as well. So I'm happy to, you know, share my time. Um, You know, I think obviously the, 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 you know, it's not like I'm I'm the the, first person of this this group here that has thought about this or in the field, like there's lots of amazing stuff. Some of it actually very closely related to school and uh, I'm happy to share time. But, um, you know, I'd say on on the snorkel flow side, so the the platform uh, through the company, you know, we take uh, we've had a lot of success with a very you know practical approach that really just uh, revolves at a high level around analysis tools that guide you to where to prioritize your effort. Right. So um, one of the you know one of the, the the kind of misconceptions with you know both our work in snorkel and I think some of the just general weak supervision work is is people expecting there to be kind of you know garbage in gold out systems. And what it really is, is about trying to accelerate a fundamental human loop process. That has always been our perspective around, around snorkel flow. And so you know, you're writing these labeling functions and we want to accelerate the process by, um, this goes back to the first paper we published on what well, we were calling it data programming in 2016. We were comparing to prior systems where people would write if-then constructs to label data, or they would manually you know, tie-break between disagreeing you know, you know, label we're now calling labeling functions. And so, you know, first of all, the 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 expertise has to come from somewhere. In in Snorkel, it's, you know, via labeling function, you could think of that as, you know, identifying a feature and placing a prior on it, is, you know, one way you could look at it. So The expertise has to come in somewhere and the better the labeling function, the better the output will be. And in many, you know, and, and all the kind of like modeling work that we did and that we, you know, spent time I spent time chained to a desk in Gates. You know, Dan, blink, blink twice if you're a, just a yeah, there. You, go. Um, you know, trying to like, you know, do do work on that on the algorithmic and theoretical side, um, is not meant to replace that fundamental injection of, you know, some knowledge about the problem in the world. It's meant to just, you know, remove some of the rough edges that that slow down the process. You know, adjudicate between, you know, these labeling functions that are disagreeing, right? So you don't have to like write these big if-then constructs and decide, you know, well, if label information or rule A and B disagree, then which one wins? To generalize by by training a model based on them. But fundamentally it's still about, you know, writing, you know, like you know, providing some input and iteratively refining it. And so the, the biggest impact we've gotten, both measured empirically and also just in terms of you know positive reception from our, our customers, our users, mm-hmm. is you know, tools that help make the maximal, maximal or maximum efficient use of user time in terms of where they should be looking um, uh, to, to, to improve their, their inputs in this case, labeling functions. So to make that a little bit more concrete, you know, we have an analysis page where um, in the app, where you have a bunch of both, you know, uh, you know, classic and new um, visualizations, like, you know, one is a confusion matrix. And the key is that everything is clickable and it takes you to you know some uh, in general, when you're building in snorkel, and we've written about this in the academic uh, uh, papers and also built it in a very first class way in the platform. Um, you we we usually have what we call a development set, a, a small subsample from the training set that you know uh, you're you're looking at is there for convenience when you're coming up with labeling functions. And you'll often either label this as you go or label it ahead of time. It's not big enough to actually serve as a training set, but it is enough to kind of help you. Uh, kind of tweak your priors if you want to use the academic phrasing or, you know, develop your labeling functions. And so um, what we do, the the most basic thing we do is we just offer a lot of convenient tools. So you can go back and look at different subsets of that development set or of the training set where the certain error mode is occurring and then write labeling functions based on that. Just to
1: follow follow up on that, can you also comment on the general toolkit there? Like um, even like slicing functions, do you also kind of provide ways to iterate on that? I think there was some curiosity about that as well.
2: Yeah, so, so uh, transformation and slicing functions are, are supported, but not in the same uh, current, currently not in the same first class way, right? So for labeling functions, you know, we have a full both no code and, and you know, hosted Jupyter Notebook way of building these, right? So the, the, the and again, you know, this is nothing fundamentally mysterious. I, I, I'm not going to, you know, show a, a, a demo right now, but uh, you, you could read about in, in the work, you know, we always envisioned that, you know, if you're trying to express simple patterns, first of all, you could templatize these, we call these LF templates or LF generators in some of the papers. Um, you know, in, so, and then this is part of the kind of benefit of modularity of, of how we realize it in the platform of, you know, if you're in a certain vertical, a certain domain, certain data type, certain task type, you can pull on a certain pre, you know, uh, pre-populated library of, of templates, right? So if you're classifying legal contracts, you know, there's a bunch of templates that can be you know done in push button ways around like you know fuzzy matching keywords and specific structural locations of the document or using regexes or you know importing from certain knowledge bases to do distance supervision or you know etc and whether it's for a data scientist who just wants to move quickly on to the modeling part or for a subject matter expert who you know doesn't write code you, know, you can do these in a no code way and then you can also always just you know write code uh, which is again about the, the kind of interoperability part um, so that's what it kind of looks like, and again, the analysis, uh, the iterative loop is, is, you know, basically about prioritizing where to look in the data to write a next labeling function. You can actually view this, and we wrote a workshop paper um, with uh, um, uh, some some other folks here at Stanford um, when I was on my way out. Um, uh, uh, Steve and Ben on uh, kind of thinking of combining active learning with data programming or with this this programmatic labeling technique. So in other words rather than the standard a- active learning paradigm where you're trying to prioritize what data point gets labeled, uh, according to you know, some assessment of its informativeness to the model. Um, here you can uh, basically say, what subset of the data should I show the user to write the next labeling function or refine it? And so in a sense, we're doing all of that in both kind of you know, sophisticated and also just very practical ways. We actually have a, a, a the, the, the currently most popular tool on the analysis page is one that I gave a joking title to. And then uh, Vincent Chen, who is uh, is now at Snorkel and was was here in the lab, but also did the slicing function work, um, wrote it into code because he thought it was funny and now it's baked in and our customers like it and so we can't take it out, but we called it the clarity matrix. You know, get it? Eh, Confusion. And it's a slightly different, you know, just basically shows, okay, well, here's where the model's generalizing. uh, Sorry, Here's where the model seems to be generalizing. Here's where the model is... Getting it wrong, and there's no labeling function coverage. He, you know, just shows different pockets like that. Again, it all relies on a user going back and, and, and doing something to develop the application. We try to make every step of that from identifying where to go to actually doing the development as fast and push button and guided as possible. Uh, in, in again, both pragmatic and, and more um, sophisticated ways. There's also some, I mean, actually. Um, there's some other work that uh, is related from Percy's group on on they did you know kind of group-wise lever- uh, influence functions and they use labeling functions as an example. So we we you know use some similar things like that to look at you know what data points are uh, you know under the most uh, are you know kind of contributing most to the the error modes for example. But it's really just about guiding the user so they're not like writing redundant labeling functions or they're not working on places you know they're not polishing around around sphere uh, that kind of thing. But really just based on a a mix of algorithmic techniques, uh, as well as just, you know, polished, you, you,
0: you know, UX. Yeah, cool. Uh, We we had a couple questions in the chat, um, and actually related to what you were just talking about in that iteration process. One of the things that you mentioned was having some sort of uh, small label test set or some a uh, you know, dev set that you can look at the analytics and start iterating on. How do you think about that generation process for getting that first test set or picking which examples you want to want to look at to kind of figure out whether your model is doing well or not well? How do you kind of think about that whole bootstrapping um, and and uh, uh, iteration process there? Um, well, I think the answer is not enough, given the
2: interesting ways that you phrased it. Um, Uh, you know, right now and in work to date, we've thought about this, you know, fairly naively in terms of we haven't, uh, I mean, I know there's some interesting work going on in in Chris's lab right now around, you know, hidden stratifications and trying to understand these subsets. And there's a little bit of the work that, you know, uh, uh, Vincent and I and others did around these slicing functions of thinking about the, you know, the the, the structure of the training set, but the the basic loop is still based on just, you know, taking random samples um, and, uh, you know, from a dis you know, what's assumed to be a you know, a, a, you know, from the distribution that you have, and and um, yeah just just to be concrete, like the you know, the basic thing we always assume is that you have some small budget for labeled data, and um, you know, you use that budget to um, uh, you know to get uh, you know some kind of held out test set. I mean, you could think of ways of using weak supervision to label the test set itself, but that would you know, we, we strongly recommend doing any kind of end evaluation uh, on, on just a good old-fashioned, you know, expert-labeled, te- you know, blind held-out test set, and then some amount you, know, you can use just to help guide the development. Again, the kind of idea is that you know you can have a tiny amount of data that, that you know is not enough to train a high-capacity model, but that is enough to help inform uh, you know your, your development process. And you can actually view this as bleeding into the semi-supervised learning paradigm where you have, and actually my, my colleague at Lab and now at, at the company, Parama Varma, did some work on this with Chris on you know, auto-generating labeling functions from a small amount of labeled data then using them to label a larger amount of data. So you can view this in the lens of, or in the context of the semi-supervised learning uh, uh, world as well, but I don't know if I fully answer your question. I think that the idea of how to select these subsets that are guiding the development um, I think it's still something that is, is open and, and um, especially for data sets that have more interesting, you know, substructure, really interesting.
3: I think a good segue on this, Alex, is the fact that, so the first episode of our series, we hosted Marco Tulio riberio from Microsoft, who told us about his paper on checklists, which is just a mechanism for um, kind of making sure that there's some obvious things in the data set are classified correctly or are predicted in a correct way by the model. And that was really, I asked them, and so now I'm asking also you, how do you think about potentially the connection between something like that and the labeling function and the fact that those can be in the loop. So you could use something like that to refine your labeling functions and keep on going, in particular in light of the fact that you want to make sure that you're not overfitting to a specific test set also with the labeling functions that you're writing, right?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, um, also, actually, Matei, you had some interesting work on, on model verification checks, right?
3: Yeah, assertions, I mean,
2: yeah. Yeah, since our model assertions were, were um, not to make it sound like I, I only read papers that mention the phrase labeling function, because that would be way too uh, myopic, but, um, but I did see this, that, you know, the, the, you know you 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 know that was one idea that that uh, mm-hmm. you know a much broader really awesome idea around model assertions, but it also had this baked notion that if you are, you know, and Matei hey, cut in whenever you want to summarize better, but you know if you are generating your supervision via something like a labeling function, you can use that in your model assertions, uh, which I think seems very similar to what you had the kind of general topic you brought up, and I think was was mm-hmm. a really cool. Idea. I don't know if Matei, you want to say something more broadly about the framework.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, we, it, it is, it's, it's what you said. And more generally we're saying, hey, if you're writing codes to check the output of your model to run sanity checks on it, uh, try using that for weak supervision as well. And you know, we just used a, a naive way to do weak supervision in that paper, but I'm sure it can do even better with uh, a more principled algorithm like in Snorkel
3: yeah so the interesting yeah. thing Marco, I, again, I agree with you. the interesting thing that Marco said when we asked him that question is that well you have to be mindful of then not overfitting to that, right because then if yeah. your solutions yeah. then become also your training data, you can keep on going in a loop where then you, you go a rabbit hole where you're just overfitting right so there, there, there needs to be some, some sort of mechanism for preventing that, I believe
2: yeah, I agree. I mean you know, some amount of basic regularization is, is necessary for any approach like snorkel or any weak supervision approach to work you know, for starters. And, and you know, there's definitely more uh, interesting kind of ensembling techniques that you can take, some of which we're deploying on the, the company side right now where, you, you know, I mean, the high level intuition is kind of what you're pointing out. Like you have these often very high precision but very low coverage or brittle inputs, like you know, in our case, labeling functions, and you'd like them to work. You'd like the best of both worlds ideally. Uh, you, you'd like you know, those places where you just say, look, well, this should obviously hold, I can express it. Uh, but then you'd like the, the generalization to the other more subtle patterns that you can't so easily kind of and precisely express. And that is actually what we see. And, and, and there are various ways to accomplish this ensembling, but it's certainly, you, even like, um, uh, sorry, I just need to check one thing
3: for staying on a few more minutes.
2: Okay, um, I can I can stay on for a few more minutes. At, 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 at worst or best, depending how you judge it, a little ten uh, month old is going to come bursting through the door because uh, our childcare ends at four. But uh, she's built up an amazing uh, robustness to uh, to hearing me talk.
3: It's actually I a have her also on the on the on the meeting.
2: Yeah, it was actually a terrible rebuttal to my entire kind of research agenda and motivation, which is that uh, my wife works at the hospital as a doctor, and so she's away a lot. And I got was was often right next to my daughter's playpen, and so every in between every Zoom call, I'd say like dad, 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 dad to try to get her to say dad, dad first, and she said mama first. So it shows the the power of inductive baked in inductive bias over you know copious training data. Which is, you know, both was both a, uh, you know, a little bit of a personal blow, but also very much a, a research blow. You oh, need okay. more labeling um, functions. Yeah, I need more labeled data. I should have, I should have programmatically. I should have built a machine that said, data. that's that was my was my fault." Yeah, I was doing hand labeled hand labeled data. So maybe you're right. Maybe it actually is a justification of the agenda. I I, I appreciate that. Um, but anyway, um, you know, I think the the. You, know, you actually can see it. We, we had a presentation uh, where we were seeing some results of the snorkel flow usage from a, a big um, financial institution customer where you can actually see the curves. You can see like a, you know, a rules-based approach. Uh, if you look at the kind of, you know, kind of an ROC, AUC-like metric uh, trade-off and you see that you know, you're missing all of the area under the curve, but in the high precision area where they often care about a lot, you know, you get decent performance. With a just ML approach, you get more area under the curve, but you have a, a lot of trouble at that high precision tail because there's just no direct way to say, look, I can't mess up here, here, and here. And with uh, snorkel flow, you get kind of a bit of both. You, you, you're kind of superior at all points in the curve because you, know, you get the kind of, I am kind of gesturing in the air about a, 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 you know, a half described uh, plot. So I apologize for that, but you, know, you get the kind of high recall area under the curve from a model that's generalizing, but you also get you know uh, dominance on the part of the kind of high precision tail where you just have certain assertions that you just need to respect and are very, you know, are of business importance. So I'm not sure if that made sense. I obviously can't share that plot, but like th- this idea of kind of marrying the, the best of both worlds of getting some generalization in the tail, but also having this kind of, this head of, of very precise uh, constraints that you, you, you can't mess up. Uh, th- this is one approach of how to handle that. Um, and, and uh, I'm sure there are there are clearly others too, it's really just about what's practical and, and works with modern ML techniques.
1: Um, yeah, so I guess there's a, a few more questions uh, just to close out in the last maybe five or so minutes. Um, could you comment a little bit on distributional shift and, and how that's handled um, specifically as, um, as time passes, most likely you'll have evolving needs. You talked a little bit about um, schemas changing and so on. So, how does that work within SnorkelFlow, and in
2: general, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, I, I'll, I'll present a very practical answer, which which is really you know what what we you know both what the technique offers as well as what the what the what SnorkelFlow offers, which is that you know there, there are there's a whole you know huge body of literature on distributional shift and on online learning approaches and other you know uh, uh, techniques there. So, I won't I won't pretend to like trying to give some summary there. Um, but from a practical perspective, I mean, so, you know, we obviously can adapt. In fact, you know, uh, you know Dan had a, a nice uh, piece here and some, some around, you know, online adaptation of weak supervision and, and ways to do that, which is cool, you know, separate from snorkel, but just, uh, um, again, just to point out how you can, you can do this in weak supervision. Ba- basic principle, whether you do it back or online, is that, you know, user has these labeling functions that are labeling the data and informing the model. Uh, you can relearn, you can do kind of one of two things. And this is something that we have, you know, kind of supported more on Rails in the platform. You can either, you know, automatically adjust the weighting. So certain labeling functions become less accurate or more accurate over time. You can adjust that weighting and retrain a final model. You can also alert users when the shift is too large and basically say, hey, you should probably update your training set. And that sounds very basic and boring, but that's actually a huge deal because, um, you know, if you otherwise would have spent, you know, eight person months labeling data, and you know, even if you could get an alert that says, "Hey, data should happen, you better relabel your data. Pardon me. Um, I mean, that was the problem with the Google teams we worked with, which, you know, uh, I can't name the specific applications, but they were very, you know, material to to their business. And you, we even thought that they wouldn't be good, that they wouldn't want to use Snorkel, because we thought they had like infinite budget for training data and it turns out that they that when you, when your problem changes in this you know adversarially or just there's high distribution shift every day then uh, even there you can't keep up and so this ability just to yeah to to kind of adapt and and again you can adapt the way that you're weighting and combining the labeling functions and then obviously you can use standard distributional shift techniques to update the model in various ways um, but also just the ability to say hey there was a big kind of more macro scale shift like an adversarial one or a tactics change if you're thinking about the cybersecurity space or something like that um, you should kind of look and change your training data set and having that that activity be like you know an hour or two of writing code or pushing buttons that's the kind of big practical change the other thing to say comes back to the same recourse but the 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 other kind of very common motivation is your output schema changes so we're mostly working with classification now and the amount of times you know that like like that in that Stanford example like we were you know they were the team, I should say, because I was less involved, so I don't want to uh, over-insert myself. But you know they were rolling it out to some other sister uh, other hospital systems, and, and you know some of them were saying, well, we need three grades of severity. Well, wh- what do you do then? Do you throw out the eight-person months and start over again? Luckily, they were using snorkels; so they didn't have to. There's my my uh, my advertising pitch. But um, you know this is also the motivation in the in the Google collaboration was they act. We actually did a study of. Um, um, Sorry, hold on one second. Um, we did a study of an ability to try to like repurpose labels that had become stale. And, um, and that's just, it's just difficult because again, as I mentioned, this other project uh, that some people are building on top of snorkel flow through the company, um, you know, we, we were able to get measurements from them. They were willing to share um, and they changed their label schema, how they were defining the labels and how many classes there were. Uh, over seven times in the course of a month. And that's not because that someone was incompetent. Just because this is how it goes in the real world. I've never seen a project where people have the annotation schema perfectly, aside from you know, stable benchmarks where no one's questioning the annotation schema because it's a benchmark, not a real world application. So that's again, same recourse. You know, in Snorkel, you can change code rather than you know, change. I mean, there's tons of work for automatic adaptation to, or I don't actually know if there's a ton of work I, I've asked around on, on automatic adaptation to schema change, um, but at very least there should be. Either way, in Snorkel Flow, the big pitch is that there's just a very pragmatic recourse, where you know instead of spending those eight-person months, you spend an you know, hour or two pushing buttons or writing code.
0: Cool. So we don't want to keep you for too much longer, uh, but I was hoping uh, at the just for maybe a short one-minute comment. Um, So at the very beginning of the presentation, you kind of talked about some of these trends that motivated the Snorkel project a few years ago. Uh, You mentioned the commoditization of architectures and infrastructure, um, the proliferation of these very data hungry models. Uh, Just in a quick one minute comment, what are some of those major trends and pain points that you see today um, that maybe weren't so clear uh, four or five years ago that you think academia or industry should be putting more effort and time into?
2: Yeah, I, so I think, I mean, some of my answers I already kind of expended in my, in my, uh, in my topic, topic choices. So I think that, you know, the, the, again, boring answer, but I think data, data being central is still very much a sticking point, right? Um, especially when you go to the areas where you find those pain points of, you know, privacy, subject matter expertise, and or, you know, rate of change or velocity requirements, right? So I think there, ML, the state of ML is a lot different. Right. and and you know I think a lot of where the progress has been today you know doesn't have those factors and so you either have implicitly labeled data or you have uh, cheap ways of labeling data um, and so um, you know I think ml looks very different there and there data is still a huge problem same same kind of motivating uh, problems you know I, I think this you know again ability to iterate I think um, the the I mean, another thing that's that's not too surprising to say, but just is the motivation for the whole ML sys, uh, you know, community that we're, many of us are trying to you know partake in and build up is just you know ML is actually getting used, and so you know I like um it is a terrible this is terrible this is just not a, a good metaphor in the age of COVID, but um but it, I still like it and I'm still going to steal it. So for my my uh, friend and colleague Amit uh, Talwalker at, at CMU, I know uh, his wife Ginger was on the 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 seminar. Um, uh, he had an article um, uh, somewhere where he wrote about like the, the metaphor of like, you know, you had the miracle of flight and the plane launches off Kitty Hawk or, or wherever um, I'm remembering my history. And um, but what actually took it to a democratized utility? Well, all the modern logistics of, you know, getting fuel to the planes on, on time and, you know, pumping people through the Dunkin' Donuts so that they can get to their, their seat on time and security and the air traffic control and all that stuff. And so if you're like, you know, here. I think I'm probably just repeating your, the, the pitch of this group here, but like, you know, there's a lot of maturity around those systems that, that, you know, there's a lot of need there. There's a lot of impact there and there's a lot of opportunity and white space there. Right. And so, you know, if you look at some of the, the themes I was, I was mentioning, those are kind of humdrum in other areas of, 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 you know, software development or engineering, right. The ability to be able to like iterate and debug in practical ways, uh, modularity and and the, the, value of that uh you know the ability to map to kind of application level value not just single pieces the ability to support multi-role teams and some level those are just like common things that come up when you're actually productionizing something in in you know real world settings and so you know maybe that makes my my the themes of my talk not that interesting but i still think that there's that they're kind of like undervalued in the research world and that there's a lot of work to be done there but there's there's more white space than you would think there should be relative to how important and impactful they are. I guess that's what I mean. That's kind of an economic phrasing for a research problem, but I guess yeah that that's what i would I would point to.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm sure that that will serve as inspiration for a lot of the people who are uh, watching this, and hopefully take uh, take note of that and push new directions in 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 these areas. thanks so much, uh, alex, for for taking time out for your talk as well as uh, the discussion. I think, Um, Yeah, you took a lot of questions. Unfortunately, we couldn't get through all of them. But uh, hopefully, a lot of what people asked was covered. And I think there's only one or two things that were more technical that um, we had some people in the chat answering, actually. So that's great. Um, Thanks uh, to everyone who joined us today. Um, Thanks for taking time out during uh, election season. Hopefully, this was a good distraction. Um, and uh, hopefully you'll join us next week as well we are uh, we have a website mlsys.stanford.edu we have a mailing list so make sure to join the mailing list if you need if you want to know about speakers and stuff uh, next week we have chip uh, Huan uh, joining us talking a little bit about principles of building good machine learning systems uh, so we're excited for that um, so we're gonna say bye here and uh, have a great rest of the week everyone thank you all so much have a great week